Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Rollbar is real-time error monitoring, alerting, and analytics that helps you resolve production errors in minutes. And I talked with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, a trusted customer of Rollbar, and Paul says they don't deploy a service without installing Rollbar first. It's that crucial to them. We operate at serious scale, and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do, and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service, and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. All right, if you want to follow in Paul's footsteps and start deploying with confidence today, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. And now on to the show. Hello, JS Party people. Welcome to JS Party for this week. I am K-Ball. I will be your MC this week as we talk about communication skills for coders. I'm joined by some of our amazing panelists out there. Let me throw it out first. Joining me, Divya, how you doing? Hey, pretty good. Excited to have you on the show. We are also joined by Faros. Hey there. And Jared rounds out our panel. Hi, happy to be here. Happy to be in the passenger seat, K-Ball. You go ahead and drive this thing. We'll do what we can. So this is a topic that's come up before in little pieces when we've done pro tips or done other things or when we talked about skills strengths for developers of communication skills being something that can be very important for developers and often overlooked particularly by folks looking at the field from the outside or just getting in so i thought we would do an episode looking at the different types of communication skills that are important for developers how do we communicate with other coders how do we communicate with ourselves how do we communicate with stakeholders, non-technical coworkers, and then with users? And kind of follow that structure. So we'll start with the simplest, talking with other coders. Seems like it should be the simplest because we're on the closest to the same wavelength. And go from there. So let's throw it out to the panel a little bit. What do you think about when you think about communicating with other coders? What types of communication are we talking about here? I like to use binary. Programmers, they like that. <laughs> How's that working out for you? Just all ones and zeros. My answer is one zero 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 one 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 zero 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 one 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 zero zero. Know what I mean? Sorry for derailing you. You set it up so nicely. <laughs> <laughs> for us, you're you're good at that. You take something normal and you spin it off another direction. I love it. Mischievous, you might even say. You might. Well, one of the things that I was thinking about was around code comments and function names and things around that, which does get compiled down to binary. So you know, maybe uh. you're onto something here. So code comments is something I'm really bad at. I have ideas and opinions, but maybe I also have anti-patterns, perhaps. Um, so I will cede the floor to somebody who's has good opinions on code comments. Yeah, I, th I think that 
as for code comments, like there's like the kind of comment you can put at the top of a file. There's the kind you can put at the top of a function. And then there's inline comments, right? Do you want to talk about like when to use each and like what to put in each section? Is is that kind of what you're asking? Or I think there's a lot around that. So I know for a while there was a big push and I remember I was very passionate on the sense of, oh, code should be self-documenting because code comments can get out of whack very quickly. And so you know, if you can't understand what's going on, that means you need to refactor and make smaller functions and have better function names. And to some extent, I actually think there is some seeds of truth in that, in that if you have a chunk of code that's trying to accomplish something and is itself self-contained and you're thinking, oh, I need to put a bunch of comments on here to explain what this piece is doing, that should get pulled out into a function so that you have that complexity contained somewhere. But you probably also need some sort of comment about what is going on there and how you're doing it. So yeah, I would start from how do you think about what needs to be commented and what goes into those comments? Like what kind of content should be there? I've seen people who go the whole way, like set X to two, X equal two. Um, yeah, totally. No, not helpful. <laughs> yeah. You don't want the comments to be at the same level as the code itself. So repeating the code obviously is is not useful to anybody. But I think like comments that are higher level than the code can make sense as well as ones that are lower level than the code. So like what I mean by that is um, like higher level than the code would be like explaining the motivation for the code, right? Like why are we doing it this way? What other, like maybe what other approaches were tried or like what are we trying to accomplish at a high level here? That's like sort of giving people context. And then lower level than the code also can make sense. I've seen comments like, you know, say that you have a variable name that it's not specifying the units. You know, maybe you're getting an argument into a function and you don't really know like what are the units of this or what are valid values? Like, can it be null? Can it be undefined? Stuff like that. So I would call that a comment that's like lower level than the code. It tells you things that are details that are not actually in the code itself. So above a higher level and lower level can make sense, but the same level is not adding anything useful at all. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. I, I think one of the things I said at the top is I, I don't have great opinions on comments. Mostly it's around like inline documentation, which I don't do very much of because I tend to work in smaller teams of one even. And so I tend to think I write most of that not for other coders, but for future Jared as the coder, which can produce bad habits. But, but one of the things that I do in that regard is to only write comment inline i'm not talking about documentation now but just inline commenting on anomalies or areas of the code that can't express all of the context that i currently have in my head as i'm writing them and to describe like for anomalies for example would be a workaround for a particular bug which often is short term anything that's like short term and needs to be removed later i will often put an inline comment saying this is a workaround for this particular bug because it's not clear in the code why you're doing this thing in a roundabout way it's kind of like well that was dumb and without that comment it does look dumb but with the comment you're like oh there's a reason why this is here which almost always there is a reason but you just can't express that in the code and so the comment will say this is here for this reason oftentimes i will leak directly to a bug or an issue on github or a stack overflow thing that says you know wait for the you know once this is resolved take this out or whatever um, and those are very useful. So that would be an anomaly. Like this is just a weird code section that can't really be explained by just reading it. The other thing is really to, to, to document like the whys that can't be provided later uh, versus the how. Like the how is, is, I think, you're talking about the referrals with 
things that are at the same level as the code is like, now I'm going to set a variable. Well, that's the code's doing that. So don't, don't comment that, but go up a level and talk about why, if that why cannot be inferred from just reading. I think a lot of times new programmers, they're, they're sort of, they're writing comments at the same level of the code, not because like, you know, they're not trying to write bad comments or anything like that. They just, to them, like saying, you know, when I call this function, you know, the arguments will get passed in. Like that to them might be a useful comment because that's helping them understand the code because they're still at the level of like, what are these lines actually doing? So oftentimes, you know, what can seem like repeating the code to us is just to a beginner is like actually helping them. <laughs> yeah, but um, that's totally right. I think it's also important to think about the fact that most of us are actually reading code more than writing code. I think, was it, he goes by Getify, is it Kyle? Yeah, Kyle Simpson, he like tweeted at one point that like, I think you write code 30% of the time and then 70% of the time you're actually reading code. And I find myself doing a lot of that where I'm just reading through other people's code. And when there aren't comments, I don't know what's happening. So they're like this particular function and it's like, a lot of like a huge while loop and then within a while loop it has an if statement and then it has like multiple if statements within it. I'm like, I have no idea what's happening. And so there's a way of thinking about writing comments, like thinking about it as, as you're writing it, how someone's going to read through it. So if you think about like, I read a book and it makes sense because there's an arc. If you're <laughs> writing code comments, all of them kind of have to make sense in terms of understanding what exactly this file contains, what the purpose of the functions are. And if there's like, like Jared, you were mentioning just like weird workarounds, it's nice to note that as well. And I've done it where I've done inline comments. Uh, if I ever copy paste it from Stack Overflow, <laughs> I'll mention the, the specific post that I pulled it from just because it's nice to give context. So if someone else or, if, or future me were to come back to it, I know exactly where that code comes from. And I can go back to the Stack Overflow post and see if it actually makes sense and if it's worth continuing to keep it within the code base or not. So I like doing that. And I also there's also the, the whole commenting, like you, you all mentioned, commenting that something needs to be fixed later on, that it's like a hot fix, that it kind of works, but it's not maintainable. And so it's also nice not only to remind you that that piece of code is a workaround, but also if someone else were to pick up the code they know that if they refactor that bit, like it won't break everything. I like to prefix those pieces of code with a uh, big all caps hack, the word hack. Because I think it's good to make like ugly code look extra ugly. Like it's, it's good to make it like look like what it is instead of, because a lot of times people will, you know, when they're new to a code base will come in and copy code that they found in another file and think, you know, that that's the way that it's supposed to be done in that code base. And so like uh, oftentimes a, a gross hack can like multiply across your code base over time because people think that that's like, oh, this must be the way we do it here. But kind of sometimes you want to make, if you make it uglier, then they might think twice or fix the problem or decide, oh, the hack isn't needed anymore. Let me remove it before I copy it blindly or something like that. Yeah, that kind of thinks, makes me think of the 80-20 rule. Uh, I think my inline comments are actually follow that rule. So probably 20% of my inline comments are useful context that will help me later. And 80% of them are me Basically apologizing for the crappy code that I'm about to write. <laughs> Sorry, this is not good, but I have to move on. So here it is. Have fun. What about some of the other ways that we communicate to other coders? Um, one that I'm, I've been thinking about or running into recently is around documentation. I've noticed that in some communities, particularly thinking about Go and Python, there's a tendency to 
essentially use doc notes for everything and assume that if I document all of the functions that are available, that is sufficient for anyone coming into this. And personally, I find that that makes these things a lot harder to understand because you don't have that higher level context. But I'd be curious to hear from different members of the panel, especially I know Divya, I think you've been involved some with like the view documentation stuff. Ross, I know you've done some big open source projects. How do you think about documenting something for other developers to learn? I think there's an interesting, like speaking to the view docs and the methodology for how exactly that documentation was written. So a lot of the times people think of docs as references that a developer is learning a specific language or framework and the documentation serves as just a reference that they go to whenever they need to learn something. And the view docs, having spoken to Chris Fritz, who worked on it, and a couple of other people, the view docs were written in a way that was easily, like, it was almost like an introduction to view, so you could read the docs and actually, like, as you got to the end of it, understand exactly how things worked. So everything, it was not necessarily the case where you have to read from cover to cover, but it was easy to pick up and then understand the flow of how everything works because the way that the documentation was organized kind of built on previous documentation. And so as you're jumping through, and if you were using it as reference, you could easily jump from one piece to another and like understand how exactly a specific function or a specific component would be architected or view patterns or so on, which I think is really interesting because that's like a very novel way of thinking about it rather than thinking of documentation as like, oh, I want to help, I don't know, a developer who's working on this thing use this framework rather than I want to help them understand why they're using this particular pattern. I love it. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the kind of docs that I love as a beginner. One one really good example in addition to Vue, I think, is the Redux documentation. So um, it, it does a really good job of explaining like why you would use Redux and how to think about how the data should flow through your application. And um, I actually read it, and in the end, I didn't even go with Redux just because personally, I thought there was a little bit too much boilerplate, and I, I could just implement it implement like a simpler version of it myself with a big switch statement. But the ideas in it were very useful. And I was able to like, I, I left with like a really good mental model for like, what is Redux for and, and how to think about how to like approach, like modeling my application in this way. And I loved it. It was really, really useful. Something that I'm hearing come up over and over again is context, giving people a little bit more mental context, not just for the how does this work, but for the why's behind it. How does that play out in other types of communication that we do with other developers, like filing issues, opening PRs, making commitment messages, that type of thing. I think there's a general push like in open source to use templates when creating issues and PRs. And so, because oftentimes like if you are a maintainer or if you're the developer, the main developer of a specific project, when someone commits to your code base, it's like someone else's code that you now have to maintain in addition to your own. And it's really annoying because sometimes you're like, I have no idea. I mean, down the road, you would have no idea why this was written or why this PR was merged or why this issue was opened. And so I think I've seen a trend where a lot of open source projects tend to use templates. So it forces the outsider or someone who's not the main maintainer to explain why exactly they're raising an issue or why exactly they're bringing this PR. And so it gives specific context to the maintainer to understand why this PR is necessary and also allows for that communication. So you can start to ask questions in a way rather than being like, why do you need to do this? So it's like 
you can start thinking about the specific code and the patterns that they used and like why exactly they the, the nitty gritty of that specific PR rather than the overall context, which I think makes it much faster when it comes to merging PRs or fixing issues and so on. Another related small tip with regard to commit messages, we could probably go on a, a whole show about commit messages and we could agree or disagree on how they should be formed. One thing that I, one habit that I developed, which I've grown to appreciate over time is to write all commit messages in the present tense. And that way, when you read through the commit log later in order to catch back up, it reads more like a narrative, more like a a, a thing that's happening um, versus the past tense. The problem is that with teams, people write different ways and so it gets all jacked up anyways. But if you are on a project wherein you're one of the only uh, contributors, then you can have a nice, easy to read commit log. And I've adopted that practice and it was somewhat arbitrary, but over time, I'm like, you know what? This actually reads much more nicely than, than otherwise. I've also heard people who prefix their commit messages. So I've done it in the past in various orgs and companies where you prefix it with like fix or chore or feet so that if you're reading through, you can quickly get a glance of like what exactly that does. If it's like a refactor, you pre prefix with refactor. Has any, have any of y'all done that before? I have. I was actually listening to a recent episode on Node app structures, and I learned that Michael Rogers likes to put the word feet in front of his commit messages, and then his his GitHub Actions thing will just like auto deploy things, and he puts feet. So that that scares me a little bit. Like if I write the wrong thing in my commit message, I might deploy a new version. But yeah, I've done such things. Or on our code base, we have a lot of front front facing things for Changel.com, and a lot of admin facing things. So I'll tend to have like an admin prefix to let. Just the context of like, this is basically an admin thing. So if you're not interested in admin, ignore it. Um, but I don't do the whole chore feature bug thing myself. Yeah, I don't do that whole thing myself. But I have like my own uh, convention of like prefixing with test if I'm just changing a test so that I can skip, like I can ignore that if I'm looking for a problem. And then I have, I, I have a convention of, of prefixing with breaking in all caps if I'm breaking something. So when I'm looking through like, the commit logs to see why was there a major version bump. I can just find the commit that's all caps breaking as a prefix and then look at what what broke or what changed in that version. One thing we haven't really talked about yet is we've talked a lot about conventions for PRs that can help us as maintainers. What about how we give feedback to someone who's submitted a PR? What are constructive, helpful ways that we can approach that? Or what are some tips that we can have for how to give feedback well on a PR or issue for that matter? So an interesting one, I've been on the product team at Netlify recently. It's part of a rotation. And so I've been very much in the know in terms of how exactly Netlify works and how the product team does PRs and so on. And so one of the things that we do is we do this thing called feedback ladders which is a way of organizing and prioritizing your specific comment. So like, for example, if something needs to be changed within a PR, you would prefix it with like Boulder. I think there's also mountain, which is like mountain means it's like a huge, huge change that needs a conversation. And then Boulder is like, this is a change that you need to make before this PR is merged. And then I think there's like pebble, which is like tiny change that you like maybe stylistic tweak. And I think sand is the smallest which is often like to your own discretion, do whatever you want, like take it or leave it type feedback, which initially when I started doing it, it felt really weird. 
and fairly arbitrary, but the more I started using it, the more it allowed me to parse feedback really quickly and also give feedback. So I could understand like, as someone who is receiving the feedback, what exactly I should focus on. And then for someone giving feedback, I could also allow the person who submitted the PR, like what exactly they should focus on. So, so things could be merged quickly rather than like starting a huge conversation and then having to jump on a call. And it made it much easier and clearer because there was like no feelings hurt. You weren't like saying someone's a terrible programmer. You were just purely talking about the specific syntax or the thing that they're working on. So I've been on the giving end and the receiving end of lots of rejection online. I mean, because we talk about PRs. So on the requester side, if it, whether it's a PR or an issue, it's like I have this problem or this goal in mind. And I would like it to be solved, or I would like to fix it. I would like it to be, you know, a part of this this project. And then on the maintainer side, or the receiver of the issue or the PR, it's like, well, does this fit into my worldview? Is this a place that we're going? There's a whole bunch of things involved. And so, just a general rule of thumb: this goes for all writing, by the way, pretty much all communication. But specifically, you know, the context of potential conflict, because this is a potential conflict every single time. It could be great. It could be bad. There's a potential of this not going so well, whether I'm giving or receiving. The one thing I always like to remember is the primary audience is the key thing to any sort of communications. Who is my primary audience? And the first step in realizing that before you say, well, it's a software engineer or it's, it's for us again. He keeps opening PRs on my thing. Before you, any of that is like, this is a person, right? This is a human with their own strengths, their own weaknesses their own context, their own goals, right? Personality, like we're these, this huge, messy thing, all of us. And we're same in many ways and we're different in many ways. But before I start writing, I have to remind myself, it's, just, it's a person just like you on the other side of that text box, you know? And so remember that first. And that I think helps me craft my responses, whether in the positive or in the negative, with care and with some level of empathy. That's a great place, both because we're talking about remembering people are human and because we're talking about conflict to take a break before our next segment where we'll be talking about communicating with stakeholders and non-technical coworkers. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome back. Let us talk now about the little fuzzier communication that we all have to deal with in our days. How do we interact with people who perhaps don't speak code, who we can't just say read the docs or RTFM or whatever our bad habits are when talking with other coders, talking about dealing with stakeholders, maybe clients, maybe PMs, other folks who don't have the same level of technical background. And 
more importantly, have different sets of motivations and goals than most technical people do. So let me throw out who's who's excited to talk about this on the panel. Anyone want to raise your hand? You know, things you've learned that are important for communicating with stakeholders and other non-technical coworkers. I have the first four words you always say. Did you try rebooting? <laughs> Just kidding. We need some real answers up in here. Well, there, so there is something interesting there having to do with attention. I have a story from, I think it was Stanford IT, someone who worked at Stanford's IT department or whatever, who would tell me people would call and say they were having trouble connecting to the internet. And he learned to ask them to try turning the ethernet cable around. Now, ethernet cables are bidirectional. Direction doesn't matter. But what he'd learned was if you ask them, is the cable plugged in? They will say, yeah, yeah, sure. It is plugged in. They won't check. They know it's plugged in, in their head. They have not validated it, but they know. However, if you ask them to try turning it around, they will actually go and do the effort and go through it. And if there was a faulty connection in there, that will usually resolve it. Playing this back out to stakeholders and non-technical coworkers, the models they have in their head for how things work are not the same as ours, and they are often not complete. And so we have to be really careful when we talk with them and, and try to communicate things with them that we're, we're keeping that in mind and we're perhaps doing things that'll work around those gaps in understanding and knowledge and not expecting that when we say XYZ, which to us implies five other things, that we expect it'll imply the same things to them. Yeah, it's really tough because there's not like levels of understanding, like there, it's a continuum, you know? And so each, like it goes back to the individual and the idea that your primary audience, you need to know that person. And that person has a context of where their level of technical understanding is and their job title does not necessarily represent that. And so you have to hit that right. You have to speak at a level of abstraction that matches the understanding of the recipient. And that's difficult to weigh in that balance because if you go too far and you're describing to somebody, you know, how to plug an Ethernet cable in and they're like, yeah, I'm not a dope. I know how to plug it in. But you didn't realize they had that. You know what I'm saying? That's a bad example. But it, you can unnecessarily insult or offend somebody on accident because you think you have to explain things to them that you don't have to. And then on the other side, well, you can just go completely too far in the other direction as well. So it's a balance. It's a difficult thing. I think something that we all struggle with is like, how can I best communicate to this particular person because they do not have the same context as me? And so you have to somehow decide, guess, or ask, like, what level of understanding do you have in this particular circumstance that we're talking about? I think like zooming them out and also just getting context for like what they were trying to do. You know, did it work before? That kind of stuff can really help too. A lot of times, if you just come in guns blazing with that, you know, like I'm going to just start debugging this and it cannot go so well. It's also useful to appeal to, I don't know if this is the proper way of saying it, but like appealing to someone's ego because I think oftentimes people get really offended when you think of them as non-technical. I mean, some people obviously are like, oh, I don't know anything about computers or IT, but there are others who are stakeholders who claim they are technical and they might not be as technical as we would like them to be or that they think they are. And so it's you can kind of play that game similar to what you were mentioning, K-Ball, with that example of the Stanford IT person of like trying to say things in a way that makes people feel smarter 
And so they're more likely and more receptive to take feedback and to actually like talk more to the problem that they're having or explain specifically what they're trying to solve rather than, you know, like, oh, you're probably doing it wrongly or, oh, I don't think you understand what exactly is happening here. Because then it's, it's, it's more likely to start a conversation which is actually more useful than just like a one-sided like argument or a one-sided like I'm obviously the expert and you're not type of situation. I think a lot of what we're talking about so far actually also applies to users, which is what we were going to talk about some in segment three, and is, but is very problem focused. They come and they have a problem. They're trying to communicate it. What about in things like, say you're working with a client or with a stakeholder to try to define what a project is going to look like or how, what should get done in a certain thing? You know, I, I think we've all had that experience where we have a conversation and we think that we're on the same page as what they want and we go away and we work for a week or two and we come back and show them something and they're like did we have that conversation this looks nothing like what i expected so what are some tools that we can use to kind of bridge those types of communication areas well faster feedback loops for one so you know don't go work two weeks under an assumption if you can you know get that four hour session in and, and return back and say is this down the right path for example i think that's Something that we've established as good is the faster your feedback loop to yourself and then also to others who are going to be using it, the less time you will waste on the wrong path. So faster feedback loops, that's kind of a, that's a reactive thing, not necessarily a proactive thing. Like how do you communicate well in the first place? Get it in writing. <laughs> Get it in writing. You said this. Here it is. You signed off on it. No, um, a little bit facetious, but some of that is, is real. Well, one thing I, that is kind of in that get it in writing um, thing, but is kind of a variant on active listening that I've used anyway, is when somebody is describing to me what they want, I will try to say back to them what I heard, but I will deliberately not repeat exactly what they said because that makes sense to them. I'll try to rephrase it in the way that I would think about it or approach it. And if they hear that and say, yes, that is correct, we at least have a better chance of both having the same mind frame on it. Whereas if I repeat back the exact language they said or this is the challenge with getting it in writing. If I get them to write down exactly what they said, that still means the same to them, even if it's I'm interpreting it somewhere else. So make sure that we try that translation back and forth from your language to my language and are in agreement that both of those languages seem to be saying the same thing. That's really good advice. You could also ask questions. Like sometimes, I think when I was early on in my career, I was always afraid to ask questions to appear like I didn't know what someone was talking about. And so I would make those assumptions. And sometimes that miscommunication would happen where you go off and work for a week, come back, realize the thing you're working on is completely wrong. And so I think it's better to just get out all the dumb questions as, as much as possible. So even if to, to question your own assumptions as well. So you're like, oh, I'm assuming this is what you want. Is this exactly, is this like, am I right in saying this? Or am I right in thinking this? And so you can fully clarify all of the questions you might have. Even if it's something that seems clear, just to repeat back, like you were mentioning K-Ball, just to repeat back what you think you heard so that someone can clarify or even just affirm, yes, that's correct. Or that's exactly what I want is really useful because then that automatically removes any possibility for miscommunication. And so down the road, if there is a claim that there has been a miscommunication, you can bring back to the table, hey, we had this conversation. Sometimes that might happen in Slack and you'll be like, this message 
like not being passive aggressive, but like, hey, we talked about this. Like, this is exactly where that is noted. Or like, if it's in a documentation, if it's a document somewhere, you can refer back to it and say like, this is the assumptions and these are the questions that were asked. And so this particular like claim that you're making is new, and we're moving in a different direction. So it's not that we miscommunicated. It's that the, you know, the specs have changed, or the requirements have changed. Another thing that I've noticed a lot around that kind of thing is that. As engineers, we have a tendency to be better at kind of compartmentalizing and isolating things. So we may talk about, for example, working on a login flow. And to us, that means we're working on this login form or something like that and the interaction with our backend to login and kind of going through that. And then we bring it back for review with a non-technical stakeholder. And they're calling out things about how the header is not right and the footer is not right and this and that, that to them make perfect sense as part of this login flow because they're viewing it holistically. They're not thinking about the pieces, but we have automatically compartmentalized because we know which pieces are specific to the login flow and which pieces are not. So one tool that I've found to be useful for that is to kind of agree upfront on the scope of what we're addressing right now. and also to ask them how we if they notice things that are outside of that scope how they want to deal with it because we can say like oh okay we can always do that and that'll change our ship time it's just going to be scope creep or we can put that in a list that we'll do later in a later sprint but getting them on board up front with the approach for that and maybe your company has a standard approach we never change scope after we've decided or maybe not but getting the the stakeholder on board with that then you can always reference back. And when they call out, oh, but this header feels off, you say, okay, great. I'm so glad that you noticed that. That's outside the scope of what we talked about. So let's put it on the list and we'll do it in our next sprint or something along those lines. So they don't feel like they're being devalidated. They don't feel like you're ignoring them, but you can call back to the agreed upon. Well, this is clearly outside of what we've originally talked about. So we have reason to delay it. Great advice too. I've definitely been in both circumstances. They are both, we're talking about seeking feedback. You know, when you are seeking feedback and the feedback that you receive is useless because it's just not on the things that you were seeking. So there's a there's a level of upfront clarity there, like ask for what you want. You know, so there's some, some of the communication skills are they sound obvious when you say them out loud, like ask for what you want, you know, state the obvious. There's another one that seems obvious, but like it's just because it's obvious to you doesn't mean it's obvious to anybody else. So just go ahead and say the thing that sounds like it's being obvious. Like right now I'm doing that. I'm stating a thing that's obvious. But it's actually profound to some people who never thought, wow, I should just say it out loud because I may not have a shared context with all these people. So I've just like given a screenshot and said, what do you think before? And that's just lazy communication by me. And I get back sub core results, you know, like, hey, why is the thing green? It's like, I don't, I'm not talking about the colors. I'm talking about this. And they're like, well, you, I didn't provide them any of that. And on the other side, I've been given things that say, what do you think? And I'm just like, uh, change the header to green. And they're like, well, you know, so. Uh, ask for what you want, be clear up front. And it saves a lot of time as well as the frustration on both ends. Some advice I've heard regarding that as well or to mitigate that is um, whenever you're showing mock-ups or specs of any form, to do it as low fidelity as possible. So like, I think I was talking to a couple of people at some conference, I can't remember, but one of the things they mentioned is when you're talking to stakeholders and you're trying to walk through, let's say, a login flow, like don't even show them mocks in Sketch, like 
like actually draw it out. So it's so low fidelity that the colors don't matter, the fonts don't matter. It's clearly just like the workflow of how exactly you want a user to go through the login flow. And that gives focus to the problem that you're trying to solve rather than all the other things of how it looks. Because for stakeholders, that is often something that matters, which, which is true, it does matter. But if you're focusing on specific functionality and making sure that works and then adding the styles and things like that, it's useful to highlight that purpose of the conversation in a way and show it in a way where that's the focus. The other thing that I also note whenever I've talked to stakeholders, and I've done this and made this mistake a lot, is sometimes I talk through like what I think I will do to solve a problem, which is too technical for the stakeholder to care or know about, which then makes them feel dumb, which is not what I intended to do in the first place. Because I'll be like, oh, in order to do this login flow, you have to use like OAuth. And then with OAuth, you can use like Auth0 or you can use Okta. And like, yeah, I think they have they have the ability for you to do like authorization using JWT tokens. And then you like walk through that logic. And then to the stakeholder, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You've completely lost me. And that's frustrating oftentimes. And so I'm trying to be better about that. I still do it. But I think kind of just being silent about the specific technical details or just noting it yourself to be like, these are the things to think about. But then when you actually talk to them and you're having that conversation to not bring those things up because they probably don't care or they won't have any context to what you're talking about. That concept of context is huge and it's come up a few different times in a few different places. But one piece we haven't really talked about is getting your head into their context. So thinking about what are their goals? What are they thinking about? Uh, I had a conversation with someone at a conference one time. He works on a small engineering team inside this massive like insurance company or something like that. And he was saying, like, how do I communicate to an executive in this insurance company the value we create as engineers? And he was totally drawing a blank. He, had, he tried having conversations and the, the executive was just like, what? Um, and we talked about it. And where we started is saying, okay, what does this executive care about? What are their goals? What are their incentives? What are they trying to achieve? And in this case, it was they were focused on customer service and making sure that their um, analysts were best able to serve their customers or something along those lines. And so he said, okay, let's start with that. So you open your conversation and you say, all right, you know how it's really important for our business that our analysts are able to best satisfy our customers. We're establishing shared context. This is where we're coming from. And you're going the extra mile to establish their context. And you say, okay, we are making tools that make our analysts better able to do that. And maybe here's how we're doing that or here's what we're working on to do that. But like, you've got to start from what does this, what does this person actually care about? I guarantee it's not the code. Exactly. And if you don't know, you have to find out. And the way you find out is by asking questions. So one of the keys to being a great communicator, we think about like the, the output side of communication so much. How do I write this? How do I say this? What hand signals do I provide? But a lot of great communication is actually listening. And so you have to listen. And that's just like, and sometimes that requires practice and patience and effort to say, I'm not listening. I'm actually just waiting for my turn to talk. And so I'm missing out on all sorts of context that this person's providing to me, which I can then ingest and use to be a better communicator. So listening is hard to do, especially in long form, um, especially when you just can't wait to say that thing that you've been thinking about for this whole time. But if you don't have the context of the person, if you can't gauge their technical level, you ask them. 
one complete failure of this, which I think we all have had, uh, probably been on the receiving side of, is when you call a help support desk of any kind as a technical person, right? They do not ask you that question. Like, do you know? I was just called Dyson the other day, like with because our vacuum was on the fritz. And the person doesn't have any idea what context I bring besides my vacuum is broken. In that case, it's a pretty easy uh, solution. But lots of times you call and they'll like, I'm going to read you my script. And when the first thing is, is did you try rebooting or is your Ethernet cable plugged in? If it's these things, which can very well be the problem, but as a technical person, you're like, I know what's going on. Like, I understand the OSI model, you know, like I can understand networking. Please stop talking to me like this. Well, they didn't do any listening at all. They're just reading their script, right? So that's a really good example. They have no idea what your context is. They don't care. And therefore, they offend a bunch of people because they never hit that level very well unless you're a total noob. Um, so that's a, an example of a failure on that. Now, here's a good example. DreamHost, which is a web host that I've used for years and years and years. When you submit a, a support request, they will ask you this question. And it's basically like, I can't remember how they word it, but it's basically ask you your level of technical expertise. And one of them is like, I know more than you about this stuff. And it's just <laughs> funny. Like, it's like, I'm a noob. I kind of know what's going on here. And we're like, I know more than you about this. And so they, which is a great question to ask because they come into then that support ticket knowing what kind of uh, technical expertise they're dealing with and they can fit their communications to match. They also know when they're dealing with a jerk. Exactly. I always pick the one right underneath that, which is like, I know what I'm talking about, but I'm not a jerk. <laughs> the other thing I really like about when you communicate with stakeholders also, and to do it's, this is to do with active listening, is this ability, this way of attributing specific questions or feedback to you people. So it's similar to this replaying back a question, but it's more like to your point about this thing, this is what I say. So it makes people feel heard. Rather than like, oh, these are like, I'm going to come in as obviously the expert who knows more than you do <laughs> and tell you what exactly you need to do. But it's identifying like, you're obviously the stakeholder and I'm building this thing for your use case, which means you're obviously the expert. And I'm just here like, who's an architect or like an engineer, essentially, who's building stuff. And so let me identify your problem and also like essentially just say that your problem is important and how exactly you're going to solve it. And identifying, I think, whenever you have those conversations to specific people makes it for a more fruitful discussion. And I think also in general, people think well of you when you do that. I never realized how much of an impact that makes. I often just do it out of habit because I'm like, oh, to the point that you're making about this, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, you, you really listened to what I was saying. Like you actually truly understand what I'm saying and like broke down and explained the problem and the solution so well, which I think is great. And it's a wonderful way of communicating and making sure that someone feels heard. Yeah, that is a great piece of advice. I'm going to even like one up that in the sense or take that even further, I should say, which is if you have multiple stakeholders in a room, use them against each other. I don't mean that competitively, but rather if you have a technical concern that relates in any way to something that one of the stakeholders has brought up, attribute them the concern in some way. So you say, to the point that so-and-so is making, that ties into some technical challenges that are going to be you know, causing this, right? So they're totally right to be concerned about that and whatever. And because then it, it keeps it from being a 
engineers versus non-technical people type of scenario where it's like, you're saying we want this and I'm saying no. And it becomes more of a bilateral or a multilateral conversation where you're saying, you know, this concern that this person had is totally valid and actually plays out some on the technical side as well. And it creates this sort of, we're working together to solve this and we're working together to figure out our constraints, not just you're asking for things and I'm saying no. Way to one-up Divya, K-Balk. How rude. I'm not meaning to one-up her. I'm actually... I'm, <laughs> I know. He attributed me and then he one-up I know. Me. Sorry. So I feel a little better. <laughs> Your point, which was amazing, can be applied <laughs> to an even greater extent when okay. you have multiple stakeholders in the room. He's digging himself out of the ditch. <laughs> We're getting some real-world demonstrations here. Pulling my foot out of my mouth. Is what Communications is hard. This episode is brought to you by cross-browser testing of SmartBear, the innovator behind the tools that make it easier for you to create better software faster. If you're building a website and don't know how it's going to render across different browsers or even mobile devices, you'll want to give this tool a shot. It's the only all-in-one testing platform that lets you run automated, visual, and manual UI tests across thousands of real desktop and mobile browsers. Make sure every experience is perfect for everyone who uses your site and it's easy and completely free to try check it out at crossbrowsertesting.com slash changelog again crossbrowsertesting.com slash changelog Time for a little bit more party before we go. <laughs> K-Ball had some coffee during the break. I had some coffee. I, I am up on coffee. Are you on your fifth cup? Yeah. Fourth? Yeah, I think I, I think I might be a fifth cup for the day. I mean, it's tough to keep up with you in this segment. Party days and conferences, which also are party days. I drink a lot of coffee, um, but I cut off at noon unless I'm super jet lagged. So you know, the fact that we're morning Pacific time is great for me. Anyway. Talking about users and communicating with users, I think users, a lot of the concepts we've talked about for non-technical coworkers are applicable, but we might want to twist them a little ways and, and do things. I think Divya might be a good person to start with for this because you worked in, uh, well, DevRel, which is users who are technical. So that's kind of an interesting twist on this. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about particularly communicating with users. When I communicate with users, it's trying to, what we were talking about earlier, which is trying to identify what the problems that they're having are. And sometimes that's assuming what they are, but often it's asking directly what their problems are. So if I was giving a, a technical talk, for example, like there is no room to ask questions because you are giving a talk. <laughs> so you already have inbuilt assumptions of like, these are problems that developers have. And I often frame it as I'm a developer and I've, I've had these problems rather than you're a developer and you've had these problems because it kind of gives that. For me, what's really important is trying to maintain that sense of reference so that people can see themselves in me 
obviously they they won't directly <laughs> but just like be able to be relatable as much as possible so you're like i've been a developer for years i've done this and this has been a problem that i've hit and then trying to isolate that problem and then try to talk about solutions that you found to solve that specific problem and the other thing is like let's say you're not giving a talk and you're at a meetup or you're attending a conference or you're manning a booth or whatever talking to people and asking them a question is a way of inciting or having them talk to you about what exactly they're working on. So often it's not like, sure, I'm a developer relations person for Netlify and I love Netlify, I use it all the time, and I'll talk everyone's ear off about Netlify, <laughs> but I try not to start a conversation with like the thing, like to make, put people on the spot. So I'm like, I usually ask them what they're working on and I try to work in like what exactly are problems they're, they're having or have you used a specific technology, i.e. have you used Netlify? What are problems that you've had when you've used the platform? And I try to be as candid as possible because I think that's one way of trying to sound less like a corporate shill, which I think is like a term that Sarah Drasner uses a lot, just to make sure that people can relate to you again. Because the problem with being DevRel sometimes is people see you as a salesperson. Even though you've been a developer, you're like, oh, you've been a developer for years. And then like you become... You, be, you go into developer relations and then automatically people are like, you're now in sales and like marketing and you can't talk to us and understand us anymore. And so for me, it's a matter of like opening up that conversation and then also trying to, for me, it's, it's weird, but I try not to sound too technical, but I also try to sound technical. It's like that weird the balance. balance exactly. Yeah. Cause I don't want to go, I will go super technical but I try not to be because I try to gauge like where exactly someone sits and then speak to like where exactly they're at. So again, going back to the point of being relatable because that's really important when you're communicating with users and trying to identify what exactly they're trying to solve and their problems and their use cases, which you can then bring back to the team for the product that you're working on or the product that you represent. Well, I'm not in DevRel, but I do have developers as users as well whether it be listeners or users of the website. And I was almost going to exclude developers on what I was about to say, but I actually think we apply a lot. So users often will bring you a solution when what they actually have is a problem and they will describe it to you as a thing that you should do. Like, here's what you should do. And it's like, move a thing or change this. And that can be helpful, can be not helpful. Um, a lot of times their solutions are not good, but their problems are real and good. I mean, if it's their problem for you and you're there and you're on the, uh, the business side of the software, so to speak, like that's good for you to fix that problem because they are your customer, they are your user. And so a skill to have as a coder who's talking to users is the ability to translate their solution into like, and to drill down with them. You don't have to do this immediately when you hear the first sentence, but to work with them to figure out what it is that they're trying to solve because there's a very real need there. And gracefully, in the case that their solution is often bad, gracefully discard the solution and offer perhaps a more obvious or better solution or maybe say, I'll get back to you with like options on ways of solving this. But to be able to tease apart and find out what is the actual problem here because they weren't going to say, hey, I got this problem. They're going to say, hey, here's what you should do. You should change this. Or I have an idea for the website or whatever. 
And uh, I was going to say developers don't do that as much because they know, but no, we do that all the time. Like we just give you advice. We 100% do that. We actually, because we have solutions, we are solutions people. We will bring you lots of solutions and we are attached to them because we think they're pretty good. So that's a skill to develop is how to take a user's quote unquote feature or solution and then like figure out what they're trying to actually solve. That way you can help them better. It's not like the users aren't smart. It's just that they don't have maybe as much context. So if they if they come to you with a solution, you know, it might be the quickest way that they see to solve their problem, but it might actually be a worse uh, solution than something something else. Like especially if, if it's a developer coming to you, you know, they'll say something like, you know, ah, if there was just this function, if I could just call this method, then I could like do what I want. Just add this, please. And they'll send you like a hacked in pull request that hacks in their method that doesn't take into account any of the context of the project or, you know, uh, the des overall design. Uh, and it does solve their problem, but it's useful in those situations to just get them to step back and describe what they're trying to do. And then, and then you could talk about a solution together. I think I've worked with um, users in support as well. And when you work in support or you've ever picked up tickets in support, it's always interesting the problems people come to you with. Because sometimes it's actually really similar to the did you turn it on and off again kind of thing. Or like did you flip the cable thing. Because sometimes really technical people will like come to our support forum and they would be like, oh, the thing is not working or my website's not deploying, why? And then they'll send you the deploy logs which is like, okay, I, I can't read this whole thing. I don't know what your use case is. I don't know what your repo is. I don't know what you're trying to do. And there was one particular use case. Uh, there was one particular user who came to me with a problem, which was like, I didn't initially understand what they were trying to do, but from parsing the deploy log, so, so like deploy logs tend to be really long, but there was one piece that said that their local server was running and I, I, I basically found out that they were trying to run the local local server command on the CDN. But the thing is, I was like, the error is so clear from their specific log. And so I, I didn't want to make them sound dumb because I'm like, you're obviously a technical person and you're working on a technical thing. <laughs> and the error is so clear. So I like copied the error and I was like, based on my observation and this error, I believe this is what's happening, but I'm not 100% sure. So can you try doing this? And then like just phrasing it in a way to be like, rather than like, you're an idiot, why are you doing this? <laughs> to, to reframing it and making them seem like, oh, I think you didn't fully identify it or you didn't actually read the error message. Um, and you probably should read it more clearly, or maybe you didn't, yeah, trying to do it that way. Because I think when you work in support, and if, if you've ever done any support work, people often come with, like, guns a-blazing, like, you need to solve my problem now, um, and my problem is incredibly important, and I did everything to, like, make sure that it's been resolved, but it hasn't been resolved, even though they often don't. They just, like, I don't know, ran a deploy command once, it didn't work, and then they automatically reach out to support. It's not necessarily about communication, but it is shocking how many times the answer is, did you read the error message? Yeah, and the thing is, I think also it goes back to this whole communicating with other developers, and I think it didn't come up, but just whenever you're writing code to, to make error messages as clear as possible, so whether that be from tests or like if you're a maintainer of an open source library, to write, like I don't know, 
console like messages it so whenever they run a command they'll see exactly whatever the output is if something wrong happens and so they know exactly where to identify that problem without reaching out to you directly opening an issue or a pr with a hack i do want to get back a little bit to this idea of using their proposed solution to suggest a or to figure out their problem um, I have found that with many users, you can actually be upfront about your communication and say, awesome, I love that you've come with a proposed solution. We've just validated them. They feel good. There may be a better way to do it since we, have, we may have access to things that you don't know about or there may be other things. So let me explore your problem and maybe propose some other alternatives to see if they're getting at the same thing and kind of go with from there. I've often found that users they are looking for the patch fix. They're looking for something that gets them to the next step. But if you uncover their problem and say, okay, well, I see that you're trying to do this. What if we actually gave you the ability to do this other thing that is much bigger and more powerful? They're blown away. They're like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize that was possible because they don't have the context. They don't understand the whole scenario. And so you don't have to be invisible to them about that. You can be transparent and say, I want to explore but I, I've seen often that folks sometimes don't even realize what's possible in terms of potential. Like we might be able to get you something much, much better. So let me see if I understand what you're trying to do. And then you're having a conversation about problem and you're getting directly from them what's going on. Well, also if you empower them to think that them communicating with you or raising a specific issue might solve something bigger down the road... So if they were like, oh, this particular one bug I found, and then you're like, actually, the bug that you found implies that this other thing isn't working, and we've actually identified that that's something really important we need to fix, so thank you for raising this issue. And then maybe even attributing them in the release to be like, this person identified this problem, and it's been patched. Which I think, again, like reinforces that ability of like making people feel like their feedback is welcome, and that something that they may have raised had actually a successful impact. And I also like the ability of sometimes if I've, work, if I've worked on a project or if I've maintained an open source project and someone comes to me with a problem and I'm like, okay, it's a legitimate problem and it needs to be fixed. And then I'll be like, can you open a PR? <laughs> and I'll even offer like, I'll help you with it. I'll walk you through like how exactly to do it. And like, if you want, we'll pair on it. Because then it also gives them the ability to like not only raise the issue, but also like contribute back to the project. So they're less a passive user, but more active. And that might also bring them back to being more, more of an active contributor. I've definitely done that and seen people be like, whoa, you mean I can, I can actually do that? I can help? I can do this thing? Like it's eye-opening and very empowering and a great thing if you're working in open source. Another surprisingly powerful tool is just to ask someone to show you because users have their own sets of assumptions and context in their head. And just like we've been talking about for developers communicating, they may not be so good at laying out that entire context for you. And so if you're not fully understanding, or even if you think you are understanding what the issue is, you can ask them, hey, can you show me how you're running into this? Can you show me what's going on here? Because you will, knowing the software or knowing the situation or knowing all of the things around it, you will inevitably see more and you will see things that they're doing that are outside of your expectations. And that will help you both understand the problem, but it'll also give you more insight into your users. Because if you have never watched a user use your software, 
it is the most excruciatingly painful thing you will ever do, but you will learn more about what you could or should be doing than in almost any other activity because users are not you. They will not use your software the same way and it will blow your mind how they're actually using it. For us, I just got a business idea for you. You could just go around and be a user of software for people, you know, with all your mischievous ideas. Just like, I guess that's basically just a penetration tester. Never mind. <laughs> Old idea. There's a guy who will do a review of your website or app uh, while he's drunk and he'll screencast the whole thing. Yes. Is that Richard Litauer, I believe? Yeah, that's right. So he'll just record it and then. I, I don't know. I guess enough people have done it that it's he has like a little business doing this now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, pre, it's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, he's he's technical, but I guess if he drinks, he gets he gets less technical when he drinks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It simulates a normal user. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the idea is of him being drunk, but uh, but that's pretty funny. I'll, I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes to that. Just in case you want to contract him. Exactly. Are those screencasts public? Because even if I don't want to contract, I'm kind of curious. <laughs> <laughs> now that would be interesting. You should put them up on YouTube for everybody to watch. Oh wow, he has a whole. He has a list of 52 websites that he's reviewed, and the videos are all up for all of them. There wow. you go, K-Ball. Okay, it's it's called theuseristdrunk.com. That's amazing. <laughs> His sponsor is like a curated craft beer subscription <laughs> service. <laughs> I will say that having watched some users, I have oftentimes wondered what they're on. What are you on? I'm on your website. I mean, remember the user might be using your site while they're like their phone is in one hand. They're holding a baby that's crying in their other hand and they're getting out of a taxi like and they're trying to like push the button to do the thing. And so they're basically the imprecision of their taps and the the size of the buttons and the clearness of the message has to be so much better to, to deal with a distracted user. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're drunk. Although there's probably <laughs> plenty of actual drunk users too. <laughs> I actually saw a phenomenal article that recommended a set of exercises you can do to test the usability of your site. Like Go and use a mobile device on a train because you'll experience high levels of disruption. You know, Try to ask somebody to do something when they're in a hurry. Hold your mobile device with straight arms. You can't bend them. Do other sorts of things that end up simulating challenges that people face in real life, but that we as developers on our perfect dev machines with the you know, multiple monitors or whatever your setup is, never encounter. That's too much work. <laughs> or you could just drink a bunch of beer. There you go. All right. Anything else we want to hit on when it comes to communicating with users? Don't hit on your users? <laughs> yes. Good advice. Don't hate on them either. Don't hate on your users? Yep. Don't hate on them. Don't hit on them. Don't, uh, what else shouldn't we do? Mm. <laughs> Generally, I think coming back to your point, Jared, of remembering they're human. They're people. They're trying to do real things. We should feel compassion for them despite the fact that they may not be thinking about things the way that we think about things, they're still at the core human and the same as us. And so we should be relatable. We should be empathetic. We should be sympathetic to their challenges and not always think in our heads, oh, pebcac. But I think we are about at time. So let us wrap this episode of JS Party. Thank you for joining us for the party as always. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, Faraz. Thank you, Divya. 
It's been a good time, and we'll catch you next week. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We're just an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things around here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash ChangeLaw. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLaw.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.